Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Y'all remember the movie Red Dawn? Not the remake, the original, the good one. Side note, is anyone else just getting tired of studio remakes? Can we not think anymore? Anyway, remember in Red Dawn when out of nowhere the invasion started? It was a few planes, and then it was parachutes, and then there was chaos. Yeah, the odds of America being invaded like that is pretty slim, like not even possible. At least not right now. Of course, if we keep draining our petroleum reserves and wokeifying the military, making guns illegal, and continue giving all of our weapons away, I mean, you know, maybe. Nah, America won't be invaded that obviously. We're being invaded more subtly, which is nice, less scary. On today's episode, first we'll tempt the Lord our God, and then we'll see red. So I say unto you, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives and of your sons and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And remember, private property is theft. Now in Soviet Russia, the goal, here's we. Throughout history, art has been key to the human experience, right? Statues, paintings, macaroni, sculptures, watercolors, and finger paints with little stick-on googly eyes are some of the many expressions of art. These days... Look, I'm not an art guy, I'll be honest. You show me a picture of some sort of splashed-on smear of paint or a series of straight lines, and you call that art? Yeah, we're going to have words. But although I don't have a passion for art, I can appreciate the great works of the masters. I can appreciate the thoughtful, skillfully crafted representations of historical figures, real, mythological, or other. But when does art stop being art and start being something a bit more evil? Well, apparently when you're the appellate division of the Supreme Court of the State of New York, First Judicial Department, yeah, think, um, think Golden Calf or, you know, I don't know, maybe Moloch or, or the Baals, right? Uh, Maybe, I, I don't know, but with a fun twist. So this story is everywhere right now. You've likely heard about it already, but I just couldn't move past this one without at least adding my voice to it as well. As my base article found on the New York Times, but I'm not paying for a subscription to that liberal rag, so found on dnyuz.com, headline, Move over, Moses and Zoroaster. Manhattan has a new female lawgiver. Rather than just dive in, y'all know me by now, unless this is the first episode you're listening to, in which case, you've got a full weekend of catching up on the episode catalog ahead of you. Anyway, rather than dive right into this demonic travesty, I wanted to get a flavor for what we're dealing with here. So I did a little digging around on the old interwebs to find the history of this courthouse. The appellate division of the Supreme Court was established by the New York State Constitution in 1894. The first session of this division, the first department, took place in a temporary location, the old Arnold Constable Building, you know, on 5th and 19th. The location for the permanent courthouse was picked out. The land was purchased for $370,000, which in today's money, because I always like to see what inflation has done to us, that would be the equivalent of about $13.1 million today. 
Got to admit, even I was a little shocked by that. 135 years has made our money worth about 135th of what it used to be. Anyway, focus. In June of 1896, the architectural plans were approved, and on January 2nd, 1900, it opened for business. The city allocated 700000 through bond issue to the building of the courthouse, so the entire project cost somewhere in the 35 to $40 million range if we equated it to today's dollars. The courthouse was designed and built as more than just a building. It was designed to be an expression of the ideals of the law. To that end, the vision was to fuse architecture with art. So, the building with paintings and sculptures as one cohesive unit. In order to accomplish this, alongside the construction team, 16 sculptors, 10 painters, and a variety of other artists were involved in the forming of this project. As the New York Times story we'll be looking into slightly is regarding sculpture, that's what our focus will be when looking at the history of the building. At various locations at ground level, in the facade and around the top of the building, sculptures of historical figures considered to be founding lawgivers or figures representing aspects of the judicial system were designed, created, and placed to look out and down upon the world and the people who will enter this building. There were originally 12 statues around the top of the roof. The building itself sits on the corner of Madison Avenue and East 25th Street, so on the short edge of the building stood Confucius peace, and Moses. And then turning the corner along East 25th was Mohammed, Zoroaster, Alfred the Great, Lycurgus, Solon, Louis IX, Manu, and Justinian. And standing above the central columned entrance between Lycurgus and Solon was Justice, flanked by power and study. Each was chosen for a specific reason. Confucius represented the early Chinese law, Peace. This one actually has three figures associated with it, representing one of the virtues of law and society. Moses, obviously representing Hebraic law, the Ten Commandments. Muhammad, representing Islamic law. Zoroaster, representing Persian law. Alfred the Great, representing Anglo-Saxon law. Lycurgus, a famous Spartan lawgiver. Solon, a famous Athenian lawgiver. King Louis IX of France, also known as Saint Louis. Manu, in Hindu mythology, was the author of the laws of Manu. Justinian, the Byzantine emperor who compiled Roman law. And in the middle, Justice, obviously being the central tenet of the law, with power on one side to represent the strength of the law, and study on the other to represent the depth of the law. Then in 1955, the governments of Egypt, Pakistan, and Indonesia requested that the statue of Muhammad be removed, as it is against Islamic law to allow any image of Muhammad. Although my inclination would be to not have put Muhammad or most of the others atop this building in America in the first place, once up there, my inclination would be to tell them to go pound sand. You know, because again, America. That's why I'm making podcasts and doing engineering things, and other people are politicians, the statue of Muhammad was removed and destroyed per their request. But this left a gap on the most noticeable corner of the building. To address this, each statue along the 25th Street side was moved down by one space. Except for justice, that sculpture stayed central to the front entrance of the building. This put the empty pedestal at the extreme right-hand corner of the building, much less noticeable. And that's how the building sat for nearly 70 years. That is, until a few days ago, when that spot was granted a sculpture of the next great, 
lawgiver or law concept or um, demonic Old Testament idol. I don't know, maybe a little of each. In fact, not only is a sculpture on the courthouse, but across Madison Avenue in Madison Square Park, there's a second nearly identical but much larger golden idol uh, statue as well. So I guess first I'll describe these statues. Then I'll jump into the artist's statement where she goes into who she is and what these Baals actually are. Now, I joke about them being Baals or Baals or some other golden idol. Well, I sort of joke. I don't know. I, I, I don't get the impression that the artist designed this to be worshipped, but I also get the impression that there will be a certain genre of people that will absolutely worship this statue, and the artist will be fine with that. So, the figure is a feminine figure, which I'm not even sure that's allowed anymore. Shouldn't this have been androgynous? But no, it has curvaceous hips and boobies. It's clearly female. It has no arms or feet. Rather, there are two legs. And then where the feet are supposed to be, and also where the arms are supposed to be, these tubular tentacle things that on the feet go from one ankle and loop to the other. And on the arms, they do the same thing, but on their specific side. They loop from the shoulder to the side mostly. That's what takes the place of the arms and the feet. The statues are all gold, perfectly smooth, devoid of clothing, except for the sculpted, lacy, frilly collar thingy that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the late Supreme Court Justice, wore over her robe. The head, even more than the Cthulhu, or as I like to say it, the Chutalu, like tentacles, or more accurately, the hair on the head, seems to be the most demonic idol-esque let's say. It's split into two large braids that are then twisted and coiled to resemble ram or goat horns, you know, like you'd find in satanic slash goat representations. The statue in the park has a large hoop skirt thing that's holding the statue in the air. The statue atop the courthouse is ascending out of a lotus flower. And as I said, these statues are fully gold-colored. In the park, it is what it is. On top of the courthouse, it's alongside and in line with all the other statues, which are weathered gray stone. So it kind of stands out. The artist, Shahaz, no, Shahzia Sikander, a Pakistani-American, is 53 years old and is clearly a politically far-left feminist. She states, quote, I define my practice as that of a thinker. I think through my hand. Thinking collectively with the mind and hand creates an armature of research, clarification of ideas, and connects thought to gesture, to action, to practice. Critical thinking, creativity, and collaboration are the three tenets on which I have built my entire understanding of being an artiste. Now, I don't know about you, that sounds like a whole load of horse flop to me. She goes on, quote, I have always had an affinity for the anti-monument in my practice. My work engages the past without glorifying it. It doesn't lay claim to grandiosity. It is often ephemeral. There are works on paper, murals, installations, and animations which rarely get seen through the lens of the anti-monument. To remedy that, I thought, all I need to do is make the drawing into a sculpture. A drawing implies movement in time and across formats and mediums. It is a means of imagining and bringing forms to life. Space, velocity, magnitude, direction, all essential elements inherent in the process of drawing become active in different ways through thought and action, through animation, music, and sculpture. Now look, I, I somewhat mock. 
Oh, that's all. Were you expecting more on that? No, I openly admit I, I'm mocking that. It's, it says nothing. Don't believe me? Go back and listen to what I just read. A, a direct quote is what I said. Hey, you tell me what she's saying. But this gives you an idea of where she's coming from with her, uh, her art. I looked at her online gallery. Okay, again, I'm not an art critic. I'm not an art history major. I'm not an art connoisseur. I'm not an art lover. I don't own much art. I work with a guy named Art, but he's retiring in a few days, so there goes that connection. The bottom line is that, yes, there are some pieces that I'll freely admit show talent, and then most of them appear to be various colors of paint that she's knocked over in some sort of Three Stooges type of comedy sketch. You know, <laughs> whoop, 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 whoop. Now that we know where she's coming from, let's let's see what she says about these pieces. The two sculptures are given names. The one high atop the courthouse is named NOW. Sorry, uh, it, it's in all caps. I, assuming that's how we're supposed to say this. And the one in the park is named Witness. She says of her works, quote, The body is a powerful tool that carries its social construction. It can also function as a site of resistance. The feminine is at the center of the two sculptures, now and Witness. The form of the figure is stylized and enigmatic. It is female and fluid. Part of the body loops out and into itself in place of arms and feet, offering a non-fixed idea to the notion of the body, something amorphous like the self. It refuses to be fixed, grounded, or stereotyped. The self-rooted body represents the resilience of women who can carry their roots wherever they go, suggesting the paradox of rootedness, questioning the fallacy of assimilation versus foreignness. The sculptures are temporary and not a fixed point in the landscape, nor symbolic of any fixed ideas or of a specific community. No one person or human occupant on a plinth can represent multiple histories, ideologies, or experiences. Okay, so that's the tentacle thing. She was told these were only temporary installations, so she, she made the strong amorphous self-woman statues with roots that are apparently self-sustaining or, or something like that. I don't know. Because woman. What I do find fascinating is that this artist can identify what a woman is, where so many seem to have a massive problem with this baffling quandary these days. So, you know, good for her. Moving to the witness sculpture in the park, it stands 18 feet tall with the hoop skirt, which is supposed to be a representation of the court's stained glass ceiling dome. It has, quote, mapped on the surface of this metal structure the word hava, which means air, atmosphere, to breathe. It also means eve. Huh. So I had to look this up. Hava, spelled H-A-V-A-H, is apparently Urdu, which is spoken primarily in the countries of Pakistan and India. And that's fine, an odd choice in America, but okay, a nod to her heritage, whatever. Now, when hitting Google Translate, that doesn't seem exactly correct, you know, what she said. Eve seems to be Hawa, H-A-W-W-A, and air appears to be Hua, H-U-A. Atmosphere is Mahul, M-A-H-O-O-L, and to breathe translates to Sanslina, which is S-A-N-S-L-E-N-A, when I type in Hava, H-A-V-A-H, it translates to the English, huh? And then it suggests I might have meant Hua, H-U-A, meaning wind or air. So I'll be honest, I don't know what this artist was trying to say, but what she said she said is, uh, huh? That said, I think it's clear she's trying to make this a spiritual type of thing, oddly pulling on Eve you know, of biblical fame to use as, I, I don't know what, the original powerful woman? I really don't know, to be honest here. 
And she then goes on to describe the eight-foot-tall now on the top of the courthouse. Quote, now uses the same feminine form as in witness, but instead of the skirt raising the body, the body emerges out of the seat of a lotus. Not the car, the, the flower. The lotus, with its plethora of meanings and abstract ideas, is symbolic of a deeper truth beyond its form, alluding to perception as illusion. Popular in images in many cultures, it also expresses intangible ideas of humility, awakening, and clarity. The invisible roots of the lotus that lie below the depth of the water are echoed in the roots of the feminine figure, its form a circular bloom, with its petals within petals formation, refers to the microcosm and macrocosm in its arabesque, iconographical value. Yes, the lotus flower. For reasons I don't know, nor do I care, the lotus flower has long been a mystical type of flower. Confucius liked it because it grew from the mud, yet it was unstained. I mean, don't... Isn't that all flower? Doesn't matter. In Buddhism, it stands for purity of mind and body. The legend of Siddhartha Gautama, the real Buddha, not the fat Buddha that we're all familiar with, the legend says that his first steps caused lotus flowers to appear. In yoga, it represents the potential of individuals to harmonize their inner energy through their chakras. In Christianity, it's a flower. God designed it. He spoke it into existence on day three with the rest of the vegetation for our pleasure and enjoyment and ultimately for his glory, you know, to further display him as the all-powerful creator God. I mean that or, you know, the yoga chakra thing. Either one. I'm, you know, I'm cool with either. She continues, quote, the female body has a face with its hair braided into spiraling horns. The horns mimic the movement of the arms and are there as a symbol of the figure's sovereignty and its autonomy. Women in my work are always complex, proactive, confident, intelligent, and in their playful stances connected to the past in imaginative ways without being tied to a heteronormative lineage or conventional representations of diaspora and nation. I mean, seriously, if you had your woke vocabulary bingo card out right now, you'd have a blackout. <laughs> oh, wait, can we even use that word anymore? Out? Hmm, it doesn't matter. So, the arm tube tentacle things and the demon goat horn hair are symbols of the figure's sovereignty and autonomy. Huh. Or should I say hava? Sovereign, autonomous, that sounds like she's trying to make the statue into something, a representation of something. I just can't put my finger upon it right now. Ah, it probably doesn't matter. Quote, Femininity to me is the tension between women and power. How society perceives such a dynamic and how erasure is enacted by the social forces that shape women's lives. The, throughout literature, the notion of the female has been in conversation with the visible-slash-invisible divide, the feminine as the monstrous, the abject, the fecund, the immense, and the vulnerable. Intimacy, selfhood, valor, resistance, and femininity's intersections with race and war are markers of the fear that lurks when boundaries melt. So I'm not a woman. I, I know, I know. But Dan, how do you know that for sure? Well, I mean, let's just take for granted I'm pretty confident in this statement. So being not a woman is, is what she said, is that correct? Are you women all of the, the words that she definitely didn't just pull out of a thesaurus and vomit onto the written page? Just curious. And now in her statement, we get to one of the major points in her design. Quote, 
The recent focus on reproductive rights in the U.S. after the Supreme Court overturned the landmark 1973 decision that guaranteed the constitutional right to abortion in the U.S. comes to the forefront. In the process, it is the dismissal, too, of the indagificative bracket tireless and bracket spirit of women who have been collectively fighting for their right to their own bodies over generations. However, the enduring power lies with the people who step into and remain in the fight for equality. That spirit and grit is what I want to capture in both the sculptures. Oh, (laughs) this makes it easy. This is a form of Moloch, you know, the demonic Old Testament idol that people would sacrifice their babies to, you know, by essentially cooking them to death. This is what it generally meant when you read something about passed his son through the fire in the Old Testament. That just means the father made a burnt human sacrifice of his child. A few things here. First, the 1973 wrongly decided and decades-long wrongly upheld Roe decision did not give a woman a constitutional right to do anything. If it did, a ruling couldn't overturn it. It wedged the right to murder unborn children into the Constitution where it didn't, doesn't, shouldn't, and can never belong. Next, these poor, tired wretches of women apparently fighting for their right to their own body. Again, nobody cares, relatively speaking, what a woman does with her own body. It's the little human, the small image bearer of God that's being formed inside that body. That's the one that we'd uh, kind of like to keep the garage tools away from. It's disingenuous. Eh, It's a flat-out lazy, stupid lie made by either imbecilic and or bloodthirsty men and women that claim it's a fight for bodily autonomy. Call it what it is. Defend it based on facts, not on fantasy. That's all I'm saying. So, yeah, I'd say that uh, with the demonic goat horns, the ethereal spirit being the golden idol appearance, yeah, I I think she captured exactly what she wanted to here. Quote, the luminous figure is also a nod to RBG, as seen in the detail adorning her collar. With Ginsburg's death and the reversal of Roe, there was a setback to women's constitutional progress. Yeah, okay, women had no setback to any constitutional progress. Roe, uh, wasn't constitutional. We covered that already, which is why the Democrats want to make it a constitutional right. If it was already one, they wouldn't need to fight to try to make it one. Seems like a fairly simple concept. I would say that also there's about 50% of the murdered babies that would argue that this was actually a great leap forward for their rights as, as women. Quote, art lives, survives, inspires, It is messy. It is complicated. It is very much like life. For me, it is about knowledge construction, how we reckon with our otherness in a shifting world, how we approximate, reproduce, and reenact our culture and history. Whatever we make, consume, and give back, it has resonance and consequence beyond our immediate lives. History itself is effectively an account of the movement of objects and bodies, trade, slavery, migration, Colonial occupation, these are underlying currents, the root axes of modernity. How history is told and who gets to tell it exposes the hierarchies of power in our world. I am interested in history, in politics, and equally in the dynamism of form. Form has something alive and in conversation with its time, space, and language. Okay, I mean, well, I mean, how do you argue with that, right? Seriously, I still have no idea what this woman is talking about. It's hard to argue with someone like this. Bottom line, 
This individual has a godless worldview. If she believes in any gods, it would be very likely the great spirit of the universe or some sort of Middle Eastern mythological religion where we're all part of the great consciousness and eventually we'll all be assimilated as one. Or maybe she's a Southern Baptist. I don't know. Who knows, right? But seriously, she has a very enlightened view of herself as she views the world around her. But her worldview could be that of a dog or a worm. She has no enlightenment. She has no higher vision. She has nothing. She's a worm digging through the mud, talking about how the mud is all there is and how glorifying and wonderful the mud is with no idea what's really out there. The Bible tells us that people will profess themselves to be wise, to be learned, to be enlightened, only to be revealed as fools. The Proverbs tells us, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Job said, And he said to man, Behold the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Proverbs again says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And it says in Psalms, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. This woman has probably unintentionally, created an idol to her god, the god of this world. If you look back at the statues that adorn the top of the courthouse, we have representation of the principles of the law and society. Those are fine, right? But with regard to the actual people, the historical figures up there, we have Confucius, a real man, a wise man, not an idol. We have Moses, a prophet, a wise man, not an idol. Muhammad, originally up there, a prophet considered by Muslims to be a wise man, not a god, not an idol. Zoroaster, a prophet considered wise, not an idol. Alfred the Great, a king, one of the only two English rulers to be given the epithet the Great, a wise and learned man who not only defended his kingdom, but promoted education and literacy, a Christian king who promoted Christian laws and principles, considered great, not an idol. Like Kyrgyz, possibly real, possibly legend, a Spartan lawgiver who is credited with reorganizing the entire Spartan culture, considered a wise man, not an idol. Solon, an Athenian statesman, lawmaker, and poet, he fought against the decline of Athens and laid the foundations for Athenian democracy, wise, not an idol. Louis the Ninth, the King of France, also known as Saint Louis, he organized his kingdom so as to get rid of abuses and hear the voices of the people. Obviously, a Catholic king considered to be a good man, a good king, and concerned about the salvation of not only himself and his family, but his people. Although he was made a saint, not an idol. Manu, this is a mythical figure in Hinduism, probably thought to be an ancient teacher of sacred rights and laws, the creator of the laws of Manu, cleverly named, which is taught alongside the Vedas, although revered as wise and prophetic, not an idol. And Justinian, Byzantine emperor, also known as the Great, restored at least part of the Roman Empire, collected the confusing Roman law, made it usable again, wise, not an idol. And now we have now... This is not a man or a woman. This is a concept, a representation, a manifestation of beliefs and feelings. This is absolutely an idol. And wearing the RBG collar, that will be the face of the idol worship. Make no mistake. As Americans individually, as a country as a whole, how far can we go down this road? I mean, this is a small thing. After this story dies down, nobody in most of the country will even remember this thing is there until the next story, whenever the term ends, and this thing is removed. 
but in reading through the book of First and Second Kings, how many times do we see that even the good kings, the ones that walked in the ways of David, left the high places and the altars in place, and people still went up and worshipped and sacrificed to whatever god or gods they chose? They took down everything else, but they left those. And the next king came in and was more evil than the last king. And maybe we're so far gone as a nation at this point that this is like a whisper on a scream. It's just not really a big deal that we put an idol up on the corner of the building. But from the news coverage, from either side, it seems like this is still a contentious move. That people don't really want, you know, golden idols set up uh, pretty much anywhere. I've said it before, but Second Chronicles 7.14 is often misused as it applies to America today. It says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. That verse in context has nothing to do with 21st century America. But you know, could it hurt? Could it hurt anything for each of us to pray that these idols, much like the idol Dagon in 1 Samuel, fall over and break into pieces? Could it hurt for us to pray for revival of our nation? I mean, I don't think so, right? A few years ago, I wouldn't have said this, but I really feel like right now we're on a precipice, and one possible slope that we could rocket down is one of spiritual revival. There's a lot of other slopes too, but let's not talk about those. The end of the age comes when it comes. Until then, we should absolutely be praying for revival and the opening of hearts and eyes of millions, billions of lost Americans and those lost around the world. And around us will be idol worshipers that will figuratively bow before the gods of sovereignty and autonomy and selfishness. There will be plenty of artists that will gladly cast these idols, plenty of governments that will gladly place these idols, We must fight the spiritual battle regardless. And that starts with us praying for God to have mercy on this nation, to turn it back to him. And then we trust that whatever God's plan is, it's absolutely just, holy, righteous, and perfect. Well, comrades, when last we met, we as a country were about 78% communist. Hey, welcome back to our look at the 45 Communist Goals for America, part four of our analysis of where we stand as compared to the list of goals read into the congressional record in 1963. I say that we left off at about 78% communist as a country because at the end of part three, we could fairly easily tick off seven of the nine goals as being complete. And I think we all know that if we've looked at nine goals already, that clearly means We're going to start with goal number 10. Otherwise, I mean, what are we doing in this world? Nothing would make sense anymore. This is just simple math, people. Goal number 10. Allow all Soviet satellites individual representation in the UN. So, as a reminder of what we covered in Part 3, the UN was chartered and went into force in 1945. When the UN was chartered, some of the original members included the United States, the Soviet Union, and the Republic of China. Although this list was generated in the 1950s, the Soviet Union had this goal right from the beginning, wanting each satellite state in the USSR to be admitted into the UN. Why? Well, that should be fairly obvious, right? Votes. Even now, because of the impotence of the UN, there are certain votes and proposed actions that can be stopped by one vote or one downvote by a charter member. If the USSR had a pocket full of votes that you know they could use, that would come in pretty handy when trying to shape the world as they see fit. In fact, this is why the Soviet 
Union agreed to join the UN in the first place because a deal was brokered that gave the Soviets a permanent seat on the Security Council, which brought with it unilateral veto power. Now, this deal came about at the end of World War II at the Yalta Conference. During that time, Stalin requested that all 16 satellite Soviet socialist republics be granted UN membership. Well, that was kind of an unacceptable request. So to counter, the U.S. said that if that was the case, eh, then we would like to have all 48 states at that time to hold individual memberships. Well, that didn't go over too well, so another deal was struck to admit Ukraine and Belarus, basically the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic, and that's the representation the Soviet Union had, three seats, from 1945 to 1991. So this goal was never actually realized, not as they intended, so we can gain a little ground back on sliding into the evils of communism. Now we're sitting at seven of ten goals accomplished. Goal number 11. Promote the UN as the only hope for mankind. If its charter is rewritten, demand that it be set up as a one-world government with its own independent armed forces. Some communist leaders believe the world can be taken over as easily by the UN as by Moscow. Sometimes these two centers compete with each other as they are now doing in the Congo. I'm not going to cover the Congo thing. Doesn't really matter. But if you've seen anything in the news regarding the UN, depending on the slant of what you've heard, the UN is either evil or the single greatest force for peace in the world. Now, I'll tell you that from where I stand, knowing how impotent they are, knowing how corrupt they are, and understanding how useless they are, I'd lean probably more toward the evil part being the case. Personally, I'd rather that the UN got out of our country and that the US got out of the UN. I mean, I see no reason why we should be involved with this especially with us putting up most of the financing. So this goal has multiple parts. Promoting the UN as the only hope for mankind. Well, depends on your source of the news, right? I think this has probably been done. However, I don't know that I would call this messaging to be successful as of right now. The second part, a rewriting of the charter, well, that's never been done. It has been amended per the UN's website five times in its history. Article 108 of their charter mandates that for an amendment to be accepted, two-thirds of the members of the General Assembly must adopt it, and then two-thirds of the total membership must ratify it, which included all of the permanent members of the Security Council, which consists of China, France, Russia, the UK, and the US. So it's not easy to even amend the charter. The five amendments thus far have been fairly innocuous. In 1965, the Security Council was enlarged from 11 to 15 members. The required number of Security Council votes was enlarged from 7 to 9. And the Economic and Social Council was enlarged from 18 to 27 members. Additionally, in 1968, there was a change of the requirements for a general council to review the charter. And finally, in 1973, the Economic and Security Council was enlarged yet again from 27 to 54 members. So you can see that not a whole lot has really gone on and since 1973 nothing has gone on. So this is yet another failed goal which helps us as a country out tremendously. Now we're at 7 out of 11 goals accomplished. And that said, the UN is currently working as peacekeepers in 12 countries mostly in Africa with a few outside of Africa. Their army is about 70,000 troops strong contributed to by various armies of the UN members. From time to time, a general document called Agenda 21 pops up regarding the UN and a one world order. 
Various news outlets have worked hard to kind of tamp this down as just a rumor or a conspiracy theory or an outright lie. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But there's no question that if given the authority, the UN would definitely desire to be the one government to rule them all. I guess time will tell if we'll allow this to happen in the future. We do know that in recent years there has been a call for the UN to be the Supreme Supreme Court of the United States to make rulings based on international law rather than that old dusty crusty constitution of ours. Additionally, there have been calls from time to time to just use the UN peacekeepers inside of our own sovereign borders in order to, I don't know, who knows, maintain order, stop riots, etc. So far, these calls and efforts have been fruitless. Let's try to keep it that way. Goal number 12. Resist any attempt to outlaw the Communist Party. So shortly after the end of World War II, the Red Scare raised its head, or, or more accurately, the second Red Scare raised its head. The first was actually right after World War One. Now, this was the era of McCarthyism and the hunt for anyone who may be a communist in the government, in the unions, in America in general. The bottom line is that both Democrats and Republicans recognized the inherent subversive danger of communism to the American way of life, to freedom, to capitalism, to democracy in general. In a rush, an act was drafted, printed, voted on, and sent to the desk of President Dwight Eisenhower, which he signed on August 24, 1954. This was called the Communist Control Act of 1954. Now, although I personally agree in principle with what this was trying to do, as I think communism is a massively dangerous and very literally deadly form of tyrannical government control, I couldn't in good conscience agree with most of this act based on the Constitution of the United States. I think if they took more time and rewrote the bill, a lot of the problems could have been done away with, but this bill basically removed the rights of Americans as citizens if they were suspected of being a member of or a supporter of the Communist Party. Well, that's not how our system works. Our system guarantees the right and freedom to believe whatever you want to believe, as long as you're not hurting others and violating their rights to life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is why, even if we don't agree with them, American citizens have every right to be racist, to be a Nazi, to be an extremist Muslim, or communist, or a Satanist, or whatever, as long as they don't violate our laws and don't violate the rights of others. Anyway, this act was proposed as, as an amendment to the Internal Security Act of 1950. It was focused originally on rooting communists out of labor unions, and then later it declared communism a hostile foreign power, then criminalized membership in the Communist Party, then removed rights of those that identified as communists. The Democrats and the Republicans unanimously voted to pass the bill to the president's desk. Although many were afraid to speak out on it for fear of being labeled a communist themselves, it did have opposition. J. Edgar Hoover, as director of the FBI, felt it was going to force the Communist Party in America underground, making it harder to track them and monitor them. The Yale Law Journal wasn't necessarily against it, but said that the bill was so poorly written that it could never stand. And, of course, the ACLU was outraged, citing the violation of the Constitution. And yeah, even today, the ACLU gets one right every once in a great while. Well, as predicted through a series of lawsuits, the law was neutered, and finally, for all intents and purposes, it was repealed in 1993. 
So although I don't know this for sure, this act seems the most likely culprit for this goal of communism for America. And what do we see today? Well, communism may not be what it was during the Soviet Union days, but Russia, China, North Korea, Cuba, Laos, and Vietnam are all communists. And there's actually a debate among scholars as to if Russia is communist or not. Seems like a stupid debate to me, but whatever. I count them as communists. In the United States, we have the Communist Party USA, which boasts an approximate impressive 5,000 members, but has also run candidates for various public offices and has even won some of them. And if you think back to part one of the series where I described the global political spectrum, socialism is just one step, just one small step away from communism. And we have a handful of elected federal congressmen and women who are part of the Democratic Socialists of America. In the House of Representatives, we have Rashida Tlaib, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Cory Bush, Jamal Bowman, and Greg Kassar. Kaiser, Kaiser, Cesar? I don't know. In the Senate, we currently have Bernie Sanders for sure, and of course there's speculation that a much larger number of those in the House and the Senate are closet members right now. It's easy to pick out those that definitely agree with the movement, whether they're officially part of it or not. So back to the goal. Did the Soviets resist any attempt to outlaw the Communist Party? Well, I don't know how much influence they had, but in America, it's definitely not outlawed, and it appears we're going the opposite direction of that. So I've got to give them this one, which moves the scoreboard back towards their favor of 8 of 12 goals achieved. Goal number 13. Do away with all loyalty oaths. As with the last goal, this goes back to the McCarthy era. But loyalty oaths, really, they've been around forever. I mean, in the United States, you had Confederate prisoners of war during the Civil War would often be released after taking an oath of allegiance. Beginning in 1862, all U.S. naval shipyard employees were required to sign a loyalty oath if they wanted to work there. Apparently, 100,000 schoolchildren marched to Boston Common and swore a loyalty oath to FDR and his National Recovery Administration, vowing to only buy from stores with the Blue Eagle. But I don't think the commies cared about those so much. What they didn't like were the series of oaths popping up in America that were decidedly unfriendly to communism. In 1947, President Harry Truman signed Executive Order 9835, known as the Loyalty Order, that required loyalty oaths and background checks for those suspected of holding a party membership in some organization that advocated violent and anti-democratic programs. In 1950, California passed the Levering Act, specifically aimed at the University of California, which required state employees to vow their oath that disavowed radical beliefs. Well, as one would expect, some people were fired and fined and harassed in various ways, and these oaths were challenged every which way you could think of, and generally lost the challenges that were brought against them. That said, you'll still see loyalty oaths popping up from time to time in various situations. Now, with regard to the communist goal of doing away with loyalty oaths, yeah, I think that's pretty much a win, bringing us to uh, 9 of 13 goals in the bag. And let's check out one more goal for today. Goal number 14, continue giving Russia access to the U.S. Patent Office. Okay, this one took some digging, like like a lot of digging, and I'm not going to lie, I'm still not positive I know exactly the reasoning behind this one, but let's give it a shot here. 
So after World War II, if you recall what we've talked about before, Germany was once again on the hook for reparations. As part of that owed to the U.S. and the U.K., the United States moved about 1,600 German scientists and technicians and about $10 billion at that time, it's about $140 billion in value today, worth of patents and industrial processes out of Germany into the U.S. This was known as Operation Paperclip. Around the same time, the Soviets started Operation... Oh... I'll let you look that one up, and brought thousands of military technical specialists to the Soviet Union from Germany, along with a massive amount of equipment, with the idea that they would just kind of relocate entire research and production centers from Germany to the Soviet Union, and just let these experts continue to do what they were doing, creating military weapons, rockets, missiles, things like that. Well, access to the U.S. Patent Office would grant the Soviets, would grant Russia, the ability to browse through patents and trademarks and intellectual property with ideas and concepts and design specifics, etc. Again, this is my assumption, but if you look at much of the technology produced in Russia, think airplanes. Think about their space shuttle knockoff that they had. They have very... Very similar designs, almost identical designs, as the U.S. and some other countries just slightly later than we did. Now, this could be due to spying and espionage, or it could be due to access to patents, or maybe both. I don't know. Additionally, in the 1970s, a patent cooperation treaty was enacted that allowed for cooperation across many nations, around 150 right now. And this was a cooperation with the U.S. Patent Office. This made it possible to search worldwide and apply for patents worldwide. Remember, if everyone plays by the rules, your patent allows you a certain period of time to produce or sell your design and gives you the standing to sue others for stealing your design. So if Russia can swipe some technology, not get called out for it, and also patent their own inventions and designs, making them the owners of the intellectual property, well... Best of both worlds for them, right? So if this was a few years ago, I would have checked this box as being fulfilled because it was. But then Ukraine. As part of the sanctions on Russia for their invasion of Ukraine, the U.S. in March of 2022 started to nullify the patent rights of Russian patent owners, which removed their right to any compensation for patent infringement. Even more, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office then ended its relationship with the Russian Patent Office. As a countermeasure, Russia has ruled that patent holders from unfriendly states, you know, like the U.S., are now entitled to no compensation, no proceeds from their intellectual property, and that if Russian industry needs to, you know, violate international patents to keep their equipment running, well, so be it. Now, think airplane parts as one example, because companies like Boeing have cut ties with Russian airlines. Eventually, parts need to be replaced, so if they can't buy them, well, they'll just have to make them. Now, who knows where this will end? I, I don't know. I'd say that regardless of if Russia wins or Ukraine wins, eventually in the not-too-distant future, eh, we'll all make nice, and Russia will once again allow, be allowed into the patent club, whether they should be or not, because that's exactly what we do under the right brand of leadership, or or the wrong brand, from my worldview. So for now... I'll erase that check mark next to goal number 14, which brings the score to 9 of 13 accomplished goals for instituting communism into America. And as I said, 
that would be the last one, so this is where we'll stop. As it stands right now, we're actually just a bit less communist as a country than we were at the end of Part 3. But so far, this has been international type of logistics type goals. Starting next week, well, we're going to get into the meaty bits of their goals. I don't know if checking the boxes will be quite as black and white starting next week, but we'll do our best, which is all we can really do, right? So until the next episode, in the words of Richard Nixon, quote, The Cold War isn't thawing. It is burning with a deadly heat. Communism isn't sleeping. It is, as always, plotting, scheming, working, fighting. And with that, sweet dreams, and uh, bye for now. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.